You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. In Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 21, uh, if you can and are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 21 says this, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from beyond Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name uh, uh, Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe seated. Good morning, everyone. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, excited to be with you this morning as we talk about the Book of Mark here in chapter three. Uh, I love this text. I think it's a good one uh, for us. And as I said, we've been walking through the Book of Mark, and a few things I kind of want to point out about the Book of Mark. It really, I guess, one main thing is that. There are a few different themes kind of threaded throughout the book of Mark, but one, and you can kind of tell from the, the artwork we've chosen and the title of the series, is that one thing Mark is highlighting is the kingship of Jesus Christ, okay? Uh, his kingly reign. And so we believe as Christians, uh, not just because of the book of Mark, but the whole Bible, that Jesus is our king. He's not just our king, but he's the king of the universe. He's the master, the Lord, the sovereign the God, right, of, of the universe, and Mark is trying to draw that out for us, and I want us to keep that in mind this morning as we go through this scripture, this portion of text, and the other thing I wanted to point out is just generally speaking, and you guys are aware of this, there are different genres of uh, the books of the Bible, so as you kind of look at them, there's, they're, they're split up into kind of different things, and when you get to the Gospels, they're kind of a unique set of narrative, and what I mean by that is it's not necessarily just a well-laid-out theological lesson line by line, but uh, it's more story-driven, right? This is the uh, apostles giving their stories of what has happened in the life of Jesus, uh, what they see in the gospel. And so to keep that in mind, because as we go through this kind of narrative form of the scriptures, uh, if we're uh, you know, maybe not paying attention or not used to it, we kind of tend just to read it and not really apply anything. It kind of becomes a little bit harder, and so... We've got to do some digging and ask some questions uh, today of what, how the scriptures might apply. So I'm excited to get into it. Um, do you want to pray for us and ask that you join me in prayer together, and then we'll get started. So let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. <clears throat> I thank you for your authority, for your kingship. 
I ask that as we open the scriptures right now, that you would give us ears to hear what your word says. I pray, Lord, that the enemy, whom we know is real, would not win today. God, you have the authority over him. I ask that we would truly be able to understand, hear, apply your scriptures by the power of your Holy Spirit, and that we might learn and grow and be strengthened together by your precious word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our king. And it is this morning the reason we gather to worship our king, to follow our Lord, uh, and to be with you. So God, help us, we pray. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we got kind of two stories here in this portion. So the first one is kind of verses 7 through 12, and then we got verses 13 through uh, the rest of uh, till about twenty one there, and these two stories deserve to be kind of taught separately. I think personally, just because there's a lot in them that we could draw from them. But unfortunately, we're going through the book in just a year. We don't have uh, too much time to dawdle, if you will. So we got to keep to the text that we're going through. And so with that, we're going to kind of combine. There's definitely some similar themes we see throughout here. We're going to kind of tie that in together. But just wanted to mention that. So. There's really two major things I want to point out that we can see in this text, and we'll um, you know, kind of break that. I know you're thinking, yeah, two things, likely story. Okay, I know we're going to be here until after lunchtime, but it's just two things. should be smooth. Uh, the first thing I want to point out uh, is in verses 7 through 12, and really what I want to show, we're talking about Christ being king. I want to show this picture of Christ's authority as the king. So let's look at verse verses 7 through 12 together. I know Ty just read them, but we're going to do it again. It says this, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, uh, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And we see in verse 20 and 21, kind of giving color to what happened after. It says that then when he went home, the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. So we get a really cool picture of the life and ministry of Jesus right here. So this is obviously Mark is like, uh, you know, it's a very quick version of the gospel. He's moving from story to story, connecting it with the word immediately. It's like the, the newspaper highlights version, right? The tweet kind of version of the gospel. But he gives this little story right here that's really kind of a picture of when Jesus was going through Galilee and all the ministry he did there, kind of what was happening. And what we see is that the crowd was pressing in around him so much so that he said, we got to get a boat ready. And he did this a few times, right? He would actually get into a boat, get out in the ocean a little bit there, and he would preach from there, you know, and he would just kind of preach. I do picture it awkward if you were there and they weren't holding the boat. You just kind of drift down and the crowd would follow. But nonetheless, he would get out in a boat because he would have to preach so that way the crowd wouldn't literally suffocate him or attack him because everyone is is clawing and reaching it's like some weird concert you know you go to on the the ground level they're all trying to just can I get a touch of Jesus that I might be healed because he was healing many who had serious afflictions and diseases we see him casting out demons this was a crazy moment so much so that as it continues to happen his family's like dude you're insane 
You're going to die of hunger because they won't even let you eat. You're doing this all day, every day. It's not going to be helpful. Some people take that verse to think that they really thought he was insane, but I don't think that's what his family thought about him. Obviously, his mother knew who he was, and you know we got other evidences. So I think they're just concerned for Jesus that he might faint and die because he is just he's working so hard with the crowd. So a few things about the authority of Jesus is one that we see Christ has authority over all flesh. He has authority over all flesh. Any disease they were coming with, uh, you know, the uh, a more literal translation might be scourges, but there, there was afflictions that were harming the people. They had sickness, they had diseases, they had bad diagnoses, and they were coming to Christ, and he is able to heal them, right? Not like a physician that says, hey, I got a treatment. Come back in three weeks, and, you know, we're going to do this and that. No, on the spot, Jesus is healing all of these people as they come to him. And what we see is that Christ has command and authority over all living things over all flesh right there's not any disease that he's like ah, i've never seen that one before i don't know what to do no he knows exactly what's wrong and he knows exactly how to fix it and he does it in an instant this is why he's become so popular this is why all of these crowds are flocking to jesus and for us it should be an encouragement that king jesus has authority over all flesh i love that he's got authority over everything right it's all under his dominion this should be encouragement if we're sick Right, Because no matter what happens to us, whether sickness takes us in death or whether we're healed from it, we know Christ has all authority over it. Our king has authority over it, and that gives us confidence that we could follow him. No matter what happens to this body, right? Christ is in control of it all. Everything we see in the earth, as Spurgeon said, a famous quote, that God is... He's even got authority over the tiniest dust moat, right? It's, it's everything is under, from the largest planet, the tiniest dust moat. Christ has authority over it, and he's commanding and healing, and it's an amazing thing that we see. Uh, the second thing is that Christ is also commanding demons to shut up, right, in this text. As we see in, later on in the book of Mark and throughout the other Gospels, that he's also casting out demons. So what happens normally is there'll be someone who's being oppressed by a demon, that's possessed by a demon, and they're being tortured by them and they'll see Jesus Christ and they will run up to them drop on their knees and they'll start professing that he's the son of the God or they will be so worried that he is uh, going to destroy them that the time has come right the son of God is going to destroy them God himself the God man and so Jesus is commanding them shut up don't say who I am he's got this timing thing right he doesn't want everyone to quite know who he is yet because he's got the cross planned and all, all of the the plan of redemption that Christ is doing and obviously the demons are probably mocking him anyways and trying to distort things. And so he tells them, be quiet. And they listen, right? There's not one demon, not even the prince of demons, that could come up to Christ and tell him to do something and that Christ would be afraid or have to obey. Not at all. So not only is Christ the authority over all flesh, but he is the authority over everything spiritual, right? The heavenly places, the earthly realm, it's all under Christ. As the scripture says, everything has been subjected to him, right? He's got it all. And we see this beautiful picture that Mark brings us is that Christ is the king. No one disobeys the king. Everyone listens to the king. And the encouragement here for us is whether you are under physical oppression through disease or your own doing, or whether you are under spiritual oppression through your own sin or demonic forces, that Christ is in authority over it all. So where do we run? When we are oppressed, it's to Christ Jesus. And observe a few things. One is that the people are flocking to Christ. They're coming. Now, we don't know their motivations. 
Okay, so we can't say, oh, everyone was coming because they really wanted to worship him. They might just say, hey, that dude heals stuff, and I'm sick. I'm going to go to him, right? It could have been just a merely, I don't care about him as much as I care about myself. That's fine. I'm not going to, you know, speculate in this text because it doesn't really tell us. But I will say just we should observe that people are flocking to Christ. We ought to be similar, right? In all of our oppression, we ought to flock to him. He says in uh, various parables to basically annoy him. He says, look. Uh, God wants you to annoy him in prayer. He wants you to come to him with all of your troubles. And then also, we must observe the love of God in this text. This isn't really the main portion and point of the text, but man, Christ is just healing all of these people. Christ cares. I love that. He cares and he knows, right? That's why when he's talking about anxiety in Matthew 6, he says, look, your heavenly father knows everything you need. Okay, he knows you have all those needs. All right, he's not dumb. He gives good gifts to his children. So you should seek first the kingdom of heaven and all of these things are going to be given to you, right? Christ knows your needs. He knows your struggle. He knows your sickness. He knows your sin. He knows your oppression and he cares. I love this text. Does that mean everyone's going to be healed and if you're not healed, Christ doesn't care about you? No, that's not what it means. We know that from many verses, but it does mean that Christ does care. He is involved. He does heal He is powerful. He does have authority. He is the one and the only one that we could go to that can make any sort of change in our circumstance and in our lives. And I hope we're encouraged by the love of God this morning in this text. It's beautiful. We don't just serve a king who has all authority and wields it carelessly, but we serve a king who has all authority and wields it in love, and that is an amazing thing. See, the the thing that makes Christ's love so uh, profound and amazing is not just that he's loving, because if you only focus on the love, then that's when you get, the, as Court always says, the feathered, feathered hair, Jesus walking around just sprinkling love everywhere, right? Um, but no, his love is so amazing in, because you pair it with his justice, which he is coming back for vengeance as well, if you read Revelation, right? And he restrains that justice in order to love us. That is an amazing love. He restrains. Now, obviously, he doesn't just throw justice to the wind. He kills Christ, and that's where the justice comes, right? Christ gives up himself, and so he's both just and the justifier of those who believe. But his restraint on the wrath, I guess a better way to put it, by making a way for us to be safe and loving the people of God is an amazing, beautiful thing in the gospel, and we get to rejoice in that together. So here we see the picture of our glorious, mighty, loving King Jesus and his authority. Now the next thing I want to point to you and kind of where I want to maybe stick for the rest of our time is not only do we see a picture of Christ's authority given in his ministry, but now we're going to see the extension of Christ's authority through the apostles. Okay. We're going to talk a little bit about the apostles. Uh, It's going to be like a Bible class. We're going to get into the names a little bit. It's going to be fun. But what we see is that Christ, uh, listen, Christ could have done it all himself. And really, technically, he did, right? Because it's always his power through us. But Christ could have chosen to say, hey, I'm going to be the Messiah, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to rescue everyone I want to save, and that's going to be it. That's how we're going to do it, right? He could have done it that way. But instead, in his wisdom and his authority, he says, I'm going to come. And yes, I'm going to do many mighty things. I'm going to show my authority. I'm going to show that I'm the Messiah. I am going to do the, the heavy lifting, if you will. I'm going to rescue the people through the cross and the sending of the Holy Spirit. But I am going to use, in fact, fallible, sinful, silly, not that great people, and I'm going to use them in order to continue the work of the gospel throughout the age of the church. That's what Christ is doing here. So he's going to extend that authority through the apostles. That's kind of where we pick up here in verse 13. 
says this, And when he went up on the mountain and called to him those who he desired, they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the names Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So there's quite uh, a lot we could say about this. I just want to point out a few things about this extension of the authority and maybe some ways that, you know, things that we can glean from it, if you will. So first, I want, I want to point out um, Christ called those whom he desired. I love, I love that line. It says that Christ, he gathered those whom he wanted and they came. I love that line. Okay, so Christ says, hey, I got some boys that I want to call. And I love it so much because he desired to call people that, like we mentioned, weren't really great. I mean, think about Matthew, right? We're going to talk about him in a second, but he was considered a traitor, right, to his people. He was, he was uh, you know, basically stealing money from them and then helping Rome steal more money. And he was just a, a dirty guy, just a, a greaseball from what we could tell because of his position and what he did. He was a traitor to his people. And Christ says, I want that guy, right? He says, I, I do that. And Christ says that. He calls whom he desires, and they came. They came. They obeyed the voice of their master, and they came to him. It's a beautiful line. Uh, second thing I want to point out is that he called 12 of them. So he didn't just call uh, an arbitrary amount of people. 12 wasn't like, I don't know, let's see, uh, that's fine, you, you're good, right? But he called 12, and that was very purposeful. Now, obviously, there were many others that followed him and were his disciples, but he called 12 to, to fill this role of the apostle. And the, the clear tie-in there is that in the Old Testament, right, as God, uh, through Abraham, brings, uh, basically starts his people and the way he was going to save his people and rescue him, he's going to make a people for himself. It's always been God's plan. And he does that through Abraham. And then you get to Isaac, you get to Jacob, who's named Israel. And then that's where you get the 12 tribes of Israel, right? This is a, a clear tie-in here that just as God establishes people into 12 tribes, he's now going to establish the church, this continuation of this story of redemption, that he's going to establish the church with 12 apostles. And what Christ is saying is, I'm the real deal, right? He's saying, this is a continuation. The covenant I made with you back in Genesis 3.15, that I will uh, send a Messiah that's going to come through the seed of the woman, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent, that same promise, then he renewed it in Abraham, or really with Noah, with Abraham, and so on. As God's making covenant with his people, Jesus is saying, look, the new covenant is here, and I am establishing it. This is the continuation of redemption. It won't be just for the people of God, i.e. the Jews. It's going to be for the whole world that through now these 12 apostles, that they're considered, and we'll read a text in a little bit about them being the foundation of the church, right? He's going to build the church. He's going to send out the gospel, and he's going to take it to the nations uh, based on these 12 apostles. It's a really cool idea of how he does that. Now, that's as far as a numbers guy I'll get in the Bible. Okay, there's lots of other things you probably say about numbers, but that's where I'm, I'm not smarter than that, okay? Um, <clears throat> something to point out, too, is the apostle means the sent one or one whom is sent. And so I just thought that was a cool fact, but these guys are basically going to be sent by God. That's what the actual, their, their, their position as an apostle means they are sent by God. So let's talk about what God sent them to do. We get a few things here in, in verse 14. Uh, Christ called them first to be with himself. So Christ said that he had set the, apart the 12 that they might be with him and then that they might have authority to go out and preach and to 
um, do basically the ministry, right? To cast out demons and do the work of God. And so the first thing that he does is he calls them to himself. When Christ calls a man, to quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he calls him to himself, right? He bids him come and die. And so this was important for the apostles. Remember, these guys weren't learned scholars. They weren't warriors. They were fishermen, tax collectors, and probably other agrarian jobs that, you know, didn't do much of anything of what Jesus was calling them to do. So he calls them to be with him. They needed to smell like Christ, to use a weird analogy. They needed to be like him. They needed to be able to imitate Christ, right? They needed to be an example of what it means to follow him. And they messed up a lot, like you and I mess up a lot. And we get the Gospels. I mean, there's some funny stories about Peter and others. Where it's like, man, these guys weren't getting it, right? But they were coming to spend time with him. He set them apart that he might make them into the man of God they would be, as you read through the book of Acts and the amazing things that were happening through them. But the first step, the first step is they had to come be with Christ. There's no substitute for being with Christ. This is why Paul warns in 1 Timothy that someone who wants to be a pastor, that if they're young and new in the faith, that you shouldn't just throw them in there. You know, wait, wait a second, okay? They, they might get kind of just swept away by the devil, right? There's this thing where we need to learn to be with Christ, and then he can send us. And that's an important analogy there. Um, <clears throat> the other thing uh, I guess that we can point out is not only did he call them uh, to come to him, but then he also called them to be sent out, right? They were sent out to preach the gospel. They were sent out to cast out demons. So what we see Christ doing in his authority, which was he was healing the sick, he was preaching the gospel, and he was casting out demons and having that authority. He says, now I'm going to use you guys to extend that authority, and you're going to do the same thing. The apostles were healing people, right? They, they were. I mean, it's so much so that if they could just touch uh, one of the handkerchiefs of the apostles, right, they, they could be healed. I mean, there's crazy stories as you read through the book of Acts that was happening through these guys, right? Um, it's like the, the guy that's begging. He says, look, I don't have any gold and silver to give you. Peter says, but this I do have. Get up and walk, right? And the, the paralytic gets up and he walks. So it's amazing what was happening through them. What, what we see is that it's Christ, right? Because when the apostles were questioned, like, by when, this, when that happened, they got arrested by the Sanhedrin, basically, and they said, hey, on what authority are you doing? How are you doing this? It doesn't make any sense. How did you heal this guy? And Peter says, look, if you're asking on what authority this guy was healed, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're asking whether I'm going to obey you or not, well, I've got to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, right? What he's saying is Christ, by the power of the Spirit, through the apostles, was extending that authority, was healing, was preaching the gospel, and they also had authority over the demonic forces. And this is an amazing Thing, okay, the apostles, these guys uh, were given a very serious, very solemn, very powerful role in the church. They received divine revelation, so they were actually able to write scripture. All the New Testament scriptures are either written by an apostle themselves or they were written by someone who was under the direct authority of the apostles. And so they were given the ability and the call to write the New Testament scriptures that we have now today. Uh, They were the foundation on which the church was built. They were the arbiters of doctrine during their day. It's why Acts 2 says that all of the church was giving themselves over to the teaching of the apostles. They were surrendering to that. They were submitting to that. They were the ones rebuking all the churches and the ways they were wandering. Um, They were even examples of virtue and holiness. They're called the holy apostles in the scriptures. And so these guys were were the real deal. They spent time with Jesus. They were like him. And that's a good thing. And then even one day in Revelation, uh, looks like they may reign in heaven too with a special authority because God had given them this special authority. Which leads me to my next point, which is, man, the apostles did all these great things, but the apostles, who were they? They were ordinary men. They were ordinary. You can't get more ordinary 
can't get more vanilla, okay? They were just there fishing, right? And Christ said, drop the nets, you're following me. They were a tax collector. They were this vagabond group of people that Christ called. Remember, he didn't call the uh, soldiers that were known for killing people and and being mighty uh, physically. He didn't call the people that were, uh, you know, scholars and had all all this knowledge, except the Apostle Paul will get there. But nonetheless, he calls these 12 and they were ordinary men. So I think this would be a good exercise. I just want to walk through their names. I just want to talk a little bit about them, okay, of the scripture. So you got the account in Matthew, here in Mark, in Luke, and then you have the account also uh, of Acts 1, verse 13, which kind of gives this list and kind of names different things about them. And then obviously you got the scriptures in the book of Acts that explains a little bit. Well, let's walk through these ordinary men. So first he names Simon, who's called Peter, right? Peter plays a significant role as basically the first among equals, right? He ends up being kind of, the leader, if you will, by de facto, um, and this is kind of uh, in Catholicism, kind of where they get the lineage of the Catholic Church and kind of how they feel the authority is. But nonetheless, Peter, um, he gets things right. When he gets it right, he gets it right, right? He says all of these amazing things, and God puts a special burden on Simon Peter. His name is Arach. That's what Cephas means. Um, you got James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, also the son of Zebedee. I love here it mentions that they had a nickname, uh, Boanerges. Okay, so these were two brothers that were called. They live right in the same area as Andrew and Peter, and they were called to be with Christ as his apostle, and they get a nickname. Okay, no one else got an endearing nickname like this, but Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. That's what it means. Uh, and so there's a, a few ways scholars interpret that. There's a lot of scholars that do believe it's because maybe they had a thunderous voice when they preached the gospel and that they were uh, powerful in the way that they went out and ministered and did things. Um, there's a, a, another sect that believes um, it's because of their zeal. You read Luke 9, right? And they basically ask if they could call down fire from heaven on the people that rejected Jesus Christ. They said it's about to get Sodom and Gomorrah up in here because they didn't listen, but they asked Christ for permission to do it. And... Maybe Christ named him that because maybe it was a reminder, you should be zealous, but not in that way. Uh, Maybe that was what it was for for them. But nonetheless, uh, the Sons of Thunder, sounds like a 70s band. I really like it. Um, It's a good good name for them. You got Andrew, who's Peter's brother, seems to be really on the in in crowd there with them. Um, You have Philip. He's also from Bethsaida. We'll read about that in a second, but... Uh, he was probably a fisherman, probably at least something like that. He definitely knew and was would have been around, um, you know, Peter, James, John, those guys uh, when they were called. And so he's another one. You have Bartholomew, which is a great name. I love that name. My wife rejected that one, but it's one I would use for sure. Um, Bartholomew simply means son of Talmay. So this is actually probably like a surname they were given him. He is called um, other things. And so... The scholars kind of really would say about this, he's probably Nathaniel. I just wanted to read this little portion of text. I just like it a lot. It's a really cool little portion. But Nathaniel, if you remember, so John doesn't give an apostolic kind of list of all of them. He just doesn't do that in his gospel. Uh, but he does give uh, the moment that Philip was called and Philip was friends with Nathaniel. So a lot of people think it maybe was Nathaniel, uh, son of Talmay. So he just got the name Bartholomew here. But let's read, just because it's a cool story. John 1, starting verse 43, it says, The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Great question. Philip said to him, come and see. And Jesus saw 
Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So um, this does not blanket statement say for sure he was an apostle and that's who Bartholomew was, but it's just conjecture. But it seems obvious and and most scholars would agree that's probably who it was, Nathaniel. Um, I like his story. So let's continue. You have Matthew, the tax collector. Uh, I love that Mark and Luke try to protect him a little bit about that. You know, it's a big stain on his reputation, but Matthew doesn't. He admits very clearly he's a tax collector, but we already kind of went over what that is. But before the, this, you know, vagabond band got together, uh, Matthew would have been hated by the rest for sure for what he did and how, who he was in his former life. Uh, Thomas, he's also called the twin in John 11 and 16. Um, he's the famous doubter who was restored by Jesus when he appears in his resurrection. You have James, the son of Alphaeus, in Mark uh, 1540. It says his mother Mary was uh, one of the followers of Christ, so he was kind of well in there. Um, and actually, in, in another portion of the text, he's called James the Less, which is just not the name you want. You know, you'd expect James the Greater or James the Great. He was just James the Less. And that could be translated a few different ways. It was probably either that he wasn't like the other James, you know, that was part of Sons of Thunder, so he was kind of the lesser one, or it could have been just he was a tiny man like me, and so they just called him James the Little. Uh, it is funny to speculate because, you know, these guys, these guys were bros, right? They, were, they were, had a brotherhood that was, that was cool. Um, you got Simon the Zealot. He's also called Simon the Canaanite. doesn't mean he was actually from uh, Canaan. What, what Canaanite is this derivative of the Hebrew word for zeal. So he was a zealot. He was a zealous man. Probably was really close in the running of Sons of Thunder. Um, and he uh, was um, probably part of the zealot, which was a sect. We don't have time to get into that, but um, he is another one. Uh, and then Judas Iscariot, who betrayed our Lord Jesus Christ and gave him over into uh, to the people to be crucified. Definitely not a good reputation for him. And then honorable mention, not in here, but then you got Matthias who replaces him, fulfilling the prophecy in Psalm uh, 109.8 that there, there would be another who would take his office, right? And so Matthias kind of squeezes his way in there. Um, but nonetheless, I just want to point, I go through all this to say, man, this was a ragtag crew, okay? These guys were, by and large, nobodies. And God brought them together. Probably wouldn't have been best friends in high school. You had like three groups of brothers. But by, by and large, this was a ragtag crew. But God, these are the people Christ wanted. That should be encouragement for us, right? Christ wants lowly people. And so he brought them in. They had a brotherhood. You could tell this from the names. It's kind of joking. But, you know, it seems like there were some terms of endearment. They called each other. Um, and it was very cool to see them and to kind of see how this works. Now, these guys went on, these nobodies, they went on after Christ ascends and gives them authority, gives them the Great Commission. These guys went on to continue to do amazing work for the kingdom of God. Uh, if you kind of read in history, and I won't go through all of them, but you can kind of read the accounts of how they all died. Minus John, they all suffered very terrible, martyrous deaths. James is actually in the scriptures. He was stabbed by Herod. Peter was allegedly crucified upside down. A few others were crucified like the Lord Jesus, burned at the stake, uh, hit by a club, stoned to death. Uh, these guys, when they went out, I mean, it was a serious calling, right? They went out together to preach the gospel. Um, and so the apostles were not men of great intellect, renown, or fame, but they were men, um, you know, 
that turned the world upside down. That's what they did. That's what the Bible says about them. They turned the world upside down because of the Christ they knew, because the extension of the authority through them. And I hope this is encouraging for us, because remember, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, not many of you were noble or wise when Christ called you. And his point was Christ uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. So he's going to use lowly people to do his work so that those who think they are wise in this life would be confounded. I love that and how God does that. So what should we do with this authority today? I think it's where we need to land our plane here. I have four things that I think are applicable to us and that I want to talk about together. Number one is that it's great to see these apostles here, but there are not apostles like that anymore, okay? You got to be careful. You turn on the TV, you got apostle so-and-so. They are not this kind of apostle. So there's a text in Ephesians 4 that talks about the offices of the church that names the apostles, the teachers, the preachers, right? However you interpret that. Um, you can interpret that as, you know, there's scholars that say, oh, well, there's still our apostles today, but they're defined differently. It's kind of more of a character kind of, um, you know, quality about them. Others would say, no, you can't do that. It's not right. Wherever you land, we can agree that there's not men like this anymore, right? We're, we don't have men out there that are just changing the scriptures or adding new ones, right? That's, that's against, against the rules, if you will, right? There's not apostles like this. And I, I just bring that up because uh, there are uh, sex, I wouldn't call them Christians, but of profession Christians that do believe there's uh, you know, apostles still over the church that can change the scriptures and change the doctrine and change things, and I don't think that's good. Um, it's worth mentioning, there were a few added, right? Uh, so Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he does talk about how, uh, you know, essentially that he is the least of all the apostles. He talks about how James, the brother of Jesus, was also added to the apostleship, but Paul in that text, in verse 8, seems to be pretty clear that uh, the last person Christ appeared to, the last apostle that would be in this category was Paul himself. And so uh, Paul ends up being the apostle of the Gentiles and pushing forth the gospel. But that's not quite in our text, so we'll leave it there. Number two, Jesus um, continues the extension of his authority through the church today. Okay, so Yes, the apostles are no more in that authority and how they operated. There's, the church is a little bit different now, but through the church of God, Christ still extends his authority. He does this in a few ways. One is that Jesus extends his authority through the church to fight against the forces of darkness and to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. So this is what, you get the famous uh, Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, right? Jesus says, look, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what Jesus is saying is not just, he gives that to the apostles, but what he's saying is this is the commission for my people, for the church. The church is called to go throughout all the world, make disciples, baptize people, train them up to obey all that I have commanded, and I'm going to be with you. So Christ is continuing to extend his authority through the local church by pushing back darkness, building his church, and making his reign everywhere. And I think that's a good thing for us to remember because he said the gates of hell will not prevail against it because his authority is true. So as the church, we have a sure and steady mission. And then number two, Jesus extends his authority through the church by giving us overseers, pastors, elders that would oversee our souls as as Peter talks about 
and that would be involved in disciplining us through church discipline, uh, encouraging us in the faith, rebuking us where necessary. And so we believe in the power of a local church. That's why we're a part of one uh, here today. Number three, let us remember God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary kingdom work. I want you to be encouraged here, okay? Because the kind of shtick of the evangelical church for maybe since the 90s has basically been you got this dichotomy of you got the true believers that are really sold out, that are missionaries, that go to the plains of Africa and give their life there, and then you got the other people that basically tithe and they come to church and we get to preach at them and, you know, they're Christian, but maybe not in that way, right? You got like the elite, the JV varsity, uh, and it's just a bad dichotomy. I, I get it. It is, it is an extreme calling to, to do, go on the mission field. And I pray many of you do it. We need missionaries. You said that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Yes, we need missionaries. But don't forget that you are a missionary. Don't forget that Christ Jesus extends his authority through you to go and to preach the gospel and push back darkness in your ordinary job, with your ordinary life, your ordinary family, your ordinary whatever, Right? He has given us that, and we get to go, and we get to play a part. When you love your kids, you're playing a part of that. When you go to work, you're playing a part in that. God uses the ordinary means for the lowliest of people to spread his gospel, and you've been invited into that. Look, when we make a call to missions, like, yeah, we should feel guilty if we're just like, I don't want to tell anyone about Jesus, or I don't want to, but it doesn't mean you have to be a good preacher. I don't want you to be motivated to go spread the kingdom to the ends of the earth because you're guilty. I want you to be motivated because Christ loved you, right? He loved you, and he says, look, and now through the local church, being a Christian, loving your neighbor, living a quiet and godly life in Christ Jesus, it is through those ordinary means that I'm going to spread the gospel and my authority to the ends of the earth. This is an amazing thing. So let us remember that Christ uses the ordinary. We ought to live like this is true. And then lastly, and... uh, I just bring this up because I just want to thank God together. Uh, we don't really do a good job at this as the church. You know, if I were to go around and poll everybody, you probably wouldn't be able to tell me. And maybe you would. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, but in my experience, people don't really care about church history that much. They don't care about our heritage, right, that we have uh, in the people that have gone before us. This is something we've been walking through with the men in the men's ministry. But um, it's just like, look, when you see a picture of George Washington crossing the Delaware, okay, and you don't shed a tear. There's something wrong with you, right? It's like, I know we're trying to, you know, do all these things, but we got our founding fathers, right? It's a heritage we have that we're, we're proud of despite all their flaws and all those things, right? And how much more so in the church of God should we be proud? I thank God for the apostles. I, I am thankful. I want to read a text um, in Ephesians 2. And I read the whole text. It ended up being kind of long. I'm going to start just in verse 17 uh, for this time. Uh, basically, the verses 11 through 17, it's talking about how in Christ we've been saved. He's rescued us. He's paid the penalty, and we've been brought in as one people under the gospel and banner of Jesus Christ, and he has done this. And then in verse 17, it says, and he came, Jesus, and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also 
are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, obviously, God is doing the building. The Spirit is doing the empowering. But praise be to God that we have a foundation of the apostles, right? That we have now in written form the apostles' teaching that the Lord Jesus gave them himself, that we might follow it, obey it. And we are grateful for that. We should thank God for that. We should thank God for all the imperfect, terrible people that have gone before us and have held up the torch of Christ. We stand on their shoulders and we should be grateful for our heritage. That's your history lesson for today. So, in light of that, I want to pray together. Um, and I, I'm just uh, thankful for the Lord. I'm thankful for this text. And I, my prayer is that we would be so encouraged. One, in the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's over it all. If he promised the gates of hell won't prevail, they won't prevail If he promised that the gospel is growing and bearing fruit throughout the earth, it is growing and bearing fruit throughout the earth. If he promised that he cares and he'll provide what you need, then he cares and provides what you need. It's good for us to remember the authority of Christ. And also I want us to remember that God uses fools like you. Okay? He does. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be smart. You just have to know him. You have to be with him. And then he sends those people out. And praise be to God, he's done that for us. May we be used in whatever small or significant way by the Lord Jesus to bring his authority on earth till one day it will be on earth like it is in heaven where all obey the authority of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning and we thank you uh, for being our Lord, our master, our king, There is no other earthly king that would ever be worthy of your glory, your worship, your praise. You are almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful. And even though we deserve nothing but the wrath of the king, you have given yourself for us. You have sacrificed yourself that we might walk in love and newness of life. You have loved us with a love that we could never never repay, never earn but we can trust it. And so this morning, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would trust that love. We'd trust the gospel. We'd submit everything under your lordship that we might say with the apostle Paul that whether we live or die, our desire is Christ. May that be what we say. And would you use this church in the ordinary, everyday, mundane tasks and things that we do to make your precious gospel unignorable in this city. We pray for that together. We long for that together. And we're just so grateful for our heritage. We're grateful you called the apostles. We're grateful that you use fools like us to spread your gospel and your dominion. You are so both humble and glorious at the same time, Lord Jesus. And we are amazed this morning. Help us to worship, we pray in Christ's name.